Matthew chapter 5. Our text this morning, it is uh, taken from verses 43 uh, through 48. But I want to back up and I want to begin reading in verse 38 in order to get us a, a bigger picture. Um, we read both sections last week. We concentrate on, it on the first section. We're going to do the same thing and concentrate on the second section this week. So in Matthew 5, verse 38, again, Jesus is preaching, and he, he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic... Let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. and Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. We covered that portion last week. So now verse 33 or 43. And remember, um, love or turn the other cheek. Uh, you know, um, what do you say? Give your cloak also. Go the extra mile. Give to those who beg from you. And then in verse 43, he says, You have heard it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Let me stop right there. Let's go back, and I want to read that again. Because it's profound what he says here. You have heard... <laughs> it's profound. Everything he says is profound, Right? But for our purposes today, this is really profound. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what you hear. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I remember when we read that last week, I pointed out how that was a bit of a tall order. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, but consider that this rolled off of Jesus' tongue very easily. Without hesitation, he said to us, you must be perfect as your Father is perfect. So here again, we're stepping through these antitheses, and Jesus comes to this one, and he gives us the law, as we've discussed, or at least the law as it was being taught by the religious gatekeepers, the religious authorities of the day. And, and so he says, you have heard that it was said. And what is it that they heard was being said? What, have, what are you being taught? What were they being taught? They were being taught that you should love your neighbor and that you should hate your enemy. Love your neighbor, hate. You've heard it said. You're being taught. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Amen. And I tell you, this is what happens when we try to interpret and apply God's word to our lives, to the world around us, in a way that does not crucify our sinful desires. God's word will always come into conflict with your sinful desire. Amen. 
And when we try to, to manipulate it and twist it and apply it and, and work around it so that we feel comfortable in it, guess what? We come up with love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Can you see it? it's in the a very wording of this? We're, we weave these intricate rules to try to allow us to go on and be unchanged by the, the law of God, unchanged by the word of God, and yet feel like somehow we are being righteous because we're keeping the rules. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. What kind of a standard is that? I mean, come on. What kind of a, how is that even a standard? It's so subjective. What, what is, who is my neighbor? And who is my enemy? And how do I tell the two apart? I mean, isn't my enemy the one that's against me and my neighbor? Isn't that the one that's with me, that's for me? Isn't that how that works? If my enemy, someone disagrees with me, that's an enemy to me. If he's against me, if he comes against me, he's being an enemy to me. So by that standard, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, that basically just means to do whatever you want, whatever you feel like doing. Whatever your, your, your flesh tells you to do, whatever was right by you, whatever is right by your own eyes, do that. And they got there. They got to this twisting of God's law because of the selfishness of their own hearts. And don't we do the same? Amen. Here's where the law was given in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17 and 18. The law says, you shall not hate. Now listen to the law. This is the law as it was written. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So, I mean, we can read that, and obviously, I mean, the take that we're supposed to get from it is that we're supposed to love our neighbor and not hate our neighbor. And so, on the other side of that, that must mean that we should hate our enemy and not love him. I mean, we got to hate something, right? <laughs> and it just says to love my neighbor. Isn't that how it's written? Love your neighbor? It doesn't say anything about my enemy, does it? And that, and that, you know, love my neighbor, that feels about right. I feel good with that. I feel like I can do that. I feel like that makes sense to me. My neighbor doesn't, uh, doesn't put a hard burden on me to love him. My neighbor uh, is a good guy. We get along together. We have dinner at his house every now and then. And he comes over to our house and, and, and eats with us. We do backyard barbecues. You know, I remember last year, my neighbor let me borrow his mower uh, he's, a, he's a good guy, a good neighbor. We agree on a lot of things. We agree on our politics. We agree on the things that are wrong with culture. You know, if, if we had an hour, we could fix the world's problems. If they just listened to us, my neighbor and I, we get along pretty good. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. He does not put a hard burden on me when we're around each other. It's easy to love my neighbor because, you know what, I, I get the feeling that, that he loves me back. So it feels right. I like this law. Love your neighbor. I like it. That's good. I can do that. Thank you, God, for giving me a rule I can follow. <laughs> what about my enemy, though? He doesn't say anything about my enemy. So obviously, there's a different standard for my enemy. 
It must be that, well, my enemy, he's, he doesn't love me back. He doesn't treat me very well. It's hard to love my enemies. You know, last year when I had to borrow my neighbor's mower, I asked my, the other guy, and he said no. He wasn't a very neighborly person to me. In fact, he was a jerk about it, that selfish jerk. Wouldn't let me borrow. He wasn't doing anything with it. His yard's already been mowed. Mine needed, and he just didn't, wouldn't let me. He just didn't want me to have it. What a jerk. And you know what? The guy's personality, we just don't get along well. He's, he's abrasive. He's got a personality like sandpaper. Y'all know people like that. I know people like that. They just don't get along well with them. They don't get along well with anybody. They're just abrasive and rude. And this is, I mean, I don't like this guy. I just, I can't stand to be in the same room with him. He bothers me. I know for a fact that he talks bad about me to, to his friends, <laughs> if he even has friends. But he, he talks bad about me to people. I know that. He says horrible things about me. He's just very difficult to love because I know he doesn't love me back. So it doesn't feel right for me to be kind and loving to this guy. He's, he's an enemy to me. He's a jerk to me, so I should probably be a jerk back to him. That's the way. If I'm supposed to love my neighbor who loves me back, then maybe I'm supposed to hate my enemy who hates me. He deserves it, after all, right? And that goes to show just how people who have wicked hearts, who are slaves to sin and death, can take something that is perfect and beautiful and really mess it up. We've done the same thing with things that are perfect and beautiful like marriage and intimacy and art and music and you name it. We really mess it up because we're slaves to sin and death. In this case, the one that Jesus is specifically addressing is the commandment to love your neighbor that we twisted into hating our enemy. But again, who is my enemy? It's so subjective. I mean, anybody can be, as long as I don't agree with you, we can be enemies. Amen. So Jesus comes and he sets things straight. He says, no, 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 no. You, you've heard it taught to you this way. But I'm going to tell you, love your enemies. Do the hard thing. Love them and pray for them. Do the hard thing. Not the easy thing. Do the hard thing. So why, why is Jesus telling us this? You know, I, the Word of God is the Word of God, and, and we need to understand that. It's the Word of, of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but His Word is forever. And by virtue of it being the Word of God, we ought to just say, okay, we're going to go with it. It's just like when mom and dad says, when we ask mom and dad why, and they tell us, well, because I said so. And just by virtue of me saying it, that should be enough for you. Well, I mean, we're fallible people. God is a perfect God. By virtue of him saying it, that should be enough for us. But it doesn't stop us from wondering why. And it certainly does help in, in keeping the law and in, in keeping commandments when we understand them. It helps to understand why. So why would Jesus say, do the hard thing? 
It's totally against my nature to love someone, to be kind to someone, to be lavish someone with goodness who is being an enemy to me, who is treating me poorly, who is persecuting me, talking bad about me, maybe even harming me in some way. It is totally against my nature to do that. But those who love me, I can do that all day. Why is Jesus telling us to love our enemies and do something completely against what our nature is? You know, we, we've talked about Christians being different from the rest of the world. We've, we've talked about what it looked like when Jesus said uh, that we ought to be salt and light and, and how that means that we're altogether different from, from the rest of the world. We talk about being different when, when we uh, uh, see radical statements like this one where he says, love your enemies. That's pretty different. We talk about being different when we consider biblical doctrines like uh, being in the world and not of the world or being born again or, or being dead to sin, having new life in Christ. All those concepts are, are distinctions that distinguish the people of God from the rest of the world, those who love Jesus and follow him and love him with their whole heart from those who do not. They distinguish us. They make us different. I think it's worthy of us to note that Jesus' primary audience here as he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, who is he talking to? I mean, if you consider verse 1 of chapter 5, when we get right into the, the sermon, right before he starts uh, giving us the Beatitudes, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying... So an ambiguity arises in the text. We don't know who the them is that, that, that Matthew is talking about when Matthew is giving this narrative. Who is the them? Is it the disciples that came to him or is it the crowds? So I, I think it's helpful for us to understand disciples as being distinct from the crowds, as being distinct from onlookers. Just as the world is different from we are, we are different from the world in it, not of it. Amen. We have to be careful, though, not to limit the word disciples to just the twelve. Jesus had many, many disciples. At the very end, when I mean, after he had, was crucified and buried and rose again, and he had those great falling away from him, he was alone. At least, we know of at least 120 that, that came back and were his disciples. At least 120 on the day of Pentecost. Amen. Disciples is a much larger group of people. It just, it just means uh, followers of Jesus. It's a larger group, but it always means that. Someone who follows Jesus. In fact, when we refer to the 12 in, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, they're almost always referred to that way as the 12. So they're referred to as disciples, but the 12 disciples are a large, he had a large following of people. So among the great multitude that was the crowd that was there at the Sermon on the Mount, there were both disciples, which was a large number of people, and there were onlookers, people who were just curious about what was going on. And when Jesus ascended to the mountain to speak, his disciples were the ones that gathered around him. And a great number gathered around to hear him clearly. Those were his disciples. Now we know that many more people actually heard him speak because in chapter 7 when he concludes the sermon, 
verse 28, it says, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. So his primary audience is his disciples. He was teaching them. And the crowds, the onlookers, they heard Jesus teaching as well, and they were astonished. All of them were astonished by him. So why am I, why am I bringing that up? Well, who cares? What's the big deal? I think it's important for us to understand that Jesus, in giving the Sermon on the Mount, he is talking primarily to people who are his. Amen. He's teaching his students, his followers, his way. This is how you be my disciple. The Sermon on the Mount, this is how you follow me. This is what it looks like to be my disciple. Jesus is telling his people, you must be different. It's not just different to be different, though. There's a point to it. Why is Jesus telling us this? He's not just saying, I want you separate just for the sake of being separate, just so people can look at you and laugh at you and call you peculiar. There's a reason for this. There's a meaning to it. So in our passage this morning, the difference in chapter 5, the difference in these few verses that we're given is a radical difference to love your enemies. No one does that. He says, but I say to you in verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's the heart of the law. Remember the letter of the law and the heart of the law. That's the heart of it. Love the, the enemies. Love the people who persecute you. That's the proper understanding and application of the law. And that's what we are to do that is radically different as followers of Jesus. The world has its own way because of sin and death. We have a new way in Christ. So then Jesus gives us the why. So he gives us the the law. You have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then he tells us the why. Why do we love our enemies? It's so contrary to our nature. So why labor at something that is so contrary to, to my nature? What's the purpose? Verse 45, he says, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, I know I've told you before, but anytime you see those two words, so that, that's a clue. Pay attention. You need to perk your ears up and listen to what's coming next because what follows is very important. Very often it tells us the point. You know, you may be reading along, and I know I do, especially when I'm reading some of Paul's letters, and I'm thinking, boy, Paul, there's a lot of words here. What's the point? What do you mean? What are you trying to say? Why? And then he'll say, so that, or therefore, or for. Ah, here's the thank you, Paul, for telling me what you mean. He's explaining all the stuff that, that comes before. He said, and now we look up, we have a prism, we see this so that, and we have a prism that we can look through to understand and consider and apply what came before. He says, love your enemies so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So why do we love our enemies? We love our enemies so that we may be sons of our fathers in heaven. That's the why. That's the point. That's the point of doing it. And then he says, for, still in verse 35, for. What is it about loving our enemies? What is it? Love your enemies so that you may be sons of your fathers. What is it that makes us sons of our fathers by loving our enemies? Keep reading. He says, He makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and He sends rain on the just and the unjust. So what's the big deal? Why does that matter, that He makes His Son rise 
on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. I see two glaring reasons that just jump off the page to me. As followers of Christ, we are God's witness in the world. There's a reason that Jesus uses the language of God making the sun to rise and sending rain to fall in connection to our being sons of God. There is a clear, do you see the, the word for there in verse? That, that is a connection. You will be sons of your father for connecting what I'm saying next to what just came before. He makes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. It's interesting to me that those two things that, that are connected to us being sons, the why do we become sons? Why are we called sons of God for loving our enemies? He says he makes and he sends. Those are action words. Those are things that God is doing. In Acts chapter 14, the apostle Paul says that the rain and the seasons are how God testifies of himself to the world that is lost. He was, in Acts chapter 14, Paul was, uh, and, and Barnabas were in Lystra, which is a pagan city. And they, they were uh, worshipers of Zeus and, and all the Greek gods. And they, uh, Paul, they saw them do these miracles. And so they said, surely the gods have sent have come and, and have, uh, are dwelling among us. And they went to the temple of Zeus to worship uh, Barnabas, who they said was Zeus, and Paul, who they said was Ares. And in verse 14, we see what Paul and Barnabas' reaction to this was. Because when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why do you do these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn away from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Verse 16. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet, so he allowed, he, he allowed you to do, he allowed everyone to make his own decision. You serve who you want to serve. In past generations, he, he did this. Yet, even though you didn't, you didn't accept him, even though you went and you served false gods, verse 17, he did not leave himself without a witness. What was his witness? For, there's that word. Look for those words when you read your Bible. It'll help you understand it. For, by giving you rains. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart's with food and gladness. They were Gentiles. They weren't among the chosen people. And yet God did not leave himself without a witness among them. God witnessed of himself to them of his goodness from the beginning foundations of the world through his goodness to them, even though they openly served other gods, false gods. And yet God said, I will show my kindness to you. I will show my mercy to you. Even though you are my enemies, I will send rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, and I will satisfy you with good food and gladness. Love your enemies. 
Jesus says in Matthew 5, we are to, uh, that we are the goodness of God sent to witness of him to his enemies. That's the connecting language that he uses. He makes the connection by saying that God makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. And God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. You know, I, I hear this passage, God sends makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. I hear that passage used all the time to explain away bad things that happen to Christians or to explain away good things that happen to evil people. And that's just not the point of it at all. (laughs) That's not the point at all. This passage is about God's goodness to all people. It's about His display of love for people who love Him He sends rain on the the good and the just. He sends sun for the good and the just. And these are very good things. They're blessings to us. Gifts from above. And, And yet he sends those same very good things, good blessings to the evil and the unjust as a testimony of his goodness. And Jesus makes the connection He says, love your enemies, but when you do that, you will be sons of God. What is it that makes you sons of God in loving your enemies? Because God sends his goodness, his testimony of his goodness to the just and to the unjust. And so where in times past it was the rain and the seasons, Jesus is saying the testimony now is you. You are God's witness in the world. You, you, as rain and, and sun testified to God's goodness to a lost world that didn't know him, but has no excuse because they should have, now you testify to God's goodness to a lost world that doesn't know him, but now has no excuse because you are my witness. The ultimate testimony of God's goodness, of course, was Jesus Christ. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, what did Jesus do? He died for us. He was a testimony of God's goodness, even though we were enemies. He loved his enemy. Even though we persecuted him and tortured him and murdered him. Do you know what else he did? He prayed for those who persecuted him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He testified of God's goodness in his suffering and death. But church, I tell you, and you can think about it, it would have been no testimony at all if he had reacted as every one of us probably would have. If we had gone kicking and screaming the whole way. If he had protested and said, no, not me. If he had cursed them and, and called them out. It would have been no testimony at all if he had demanded justice. And loving our enemies and praying for our persecutors, that is witness of God's goodness. And the whole point of having a good witness, of God having us as witnesses, is to bring people to repentance. Romans 2.4, Paul says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The whole reason he's good to you, the reason we are here to be good, is to bring others to repentance. You know, there are so many ways that God shows his goodness and his kindness to his enemies, but chief among them is through his people. 
through you and me in order to bring repentance, in order to show them the beauty and the mercy and the great love of God, the great God that we serve. The second thing that jumps off the page to me, and really as I was studying this, it's just kind of hit me, um, is that we are, when we do this, when we love our enemies, completely contrary to what our nature is, it rightly displays the character of God. Amen. The God whose name that we have taken, calling ourselves Christians. Remember, Jesus started the sermon with, his, with the Beatitudes, all those blessed things. And one of them was, blessed are the peacemakers. And the promise was the same, for they shall be called the sons of God. And here he says, love your enemies, for you shall be sons of God. God is a God who went to great lengths to make peace with us. And we show ourselves to be his sons when we love our enemies. We rightly display his character. Rightly, correctly display. That's God's character. This is who he is. And and his people, as his people, as his witnesses into the world, we are to display his character rightly. We're like ambassadors For Christ. Imagine that. Isn't that what Paul said? We are an ambassador for Christ. And when we go into the world as ambassadors for Christ, we must correctly represent the sovereign. When we fail here in loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us, when we fail here, when we react and we revile as others have reviled us, when we return evil for evil, What we're saying, what what we are witnessing about God's character is that He is not loving. He is not kind. God is not merciful. God is not forgiving. Because they're looking to us for a witness of who He is. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 12, 17 through 18, he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I want to conclude with with this. This is where I got the title for the message. In verse 48, Jesus concludes this teaching about loving your enemies. He says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, there's, there's one of those clue words. He says, therefore, pay attention. So what is all this here for? Why love your enemies? Why is it important that you be called sons of God? Why is the, the, the how important that, that, we, that we reign? We're good to the just and the unjust. So that we will display perfect love as our Father has displayed perfect love. Love your enemies. That's perfect love. The love of the Father. In Luke chapter 6, where Luke records the Sermon on the Plain, it's a kind of companion message to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives this same teaching, and in it he concludes it with saying, you must be merciful as your Father is merciful. So I take that to mean that perfect love, the love of the Father, is merciful. Blessed are the merciful. So many times 
in the Psalms, we see God, in the, and the prophets, we see the character of God being described as a God that is merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So to say that perfect love is merciful very closely fits the character of God. We are witnesses in the world. His testimony of His great love and His mercy to us. We witness to that. When we who have been forgiven much, forgive much. A true testimony of God is how we treat others who treat us poorly. That's so hard, isn't it? And it, it, only, it, it is only accomplished by knowing what he's done and appreciating what he's done for me through his perfect love, loving me mercifully. There is a song that I love. It's called His Mercy is More. And it goes like this. It says, What love could remember no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Amen. What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What riches of kindness he's lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. Amen. We stood neath a, death, a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Amen. There are people that you know who have hurt you and who have betrayed you, who have angered you, who have annoyed you, who have just rubbed you the wrong way. And... As God's witness in the world, because you have taken on the name of Christ, it may be that you are the only witness of God that they know. Amen. And what are you saying about his character? Is, is your mercy more? Is your love one that keeps no record of wrong, like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13? Jesus didn't hesitate at all when he said, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect because he didn't think it something that was unreachable, not for the one who has new life. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father God, we thank you once again for your word. God, I pray that we are challenged by it to love perfectly because of it because of what you've done for us, because you have shown us great mercy. You are good to us. Help us to be good, to be light to the world like you have called us to be, to point everyone to what you have done, what mercy you've given us. Help us to be merciful in our own lives. Father, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.